Section 1 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Paul Carus. Introduction These prolegomena are destined for the use not of pupils, but of future teachers, and even the latter should not expect that they will be serviceable for the systematic exposition of a ready-made science, but merely for the discovery of the science itself. There are scholarly men to whom the history of philosophy, both ancient and modern, is philosophy itself. For these the present prolegomena are not written. They must wait till those who endeavour to draw from the fountain of reason itself have completed their work. It will then be the historian's turn to inform the world of what has been done. Unfortunately nothing can be said which in their opinion has not been said before, and truly the same prophecy applies to all future time. For since the human reason has for many centuries speculated, upon innumerable objects in various ways, it is hardly to be expected that we should not be able to discover analogies for every new idea among the old sayings of past ages. My object is to persuade all those who think metaphysics worth studying that it is absolutely necessary to pause a moment, and, neglecting all that has been done, to propose first the preliminary question, whether such a thing as metaphysics be at all possible. If it be a science, how comes it that it cannot, like other sciences, obtain universal and permanent recognition? If not, how can it maintain its pretensions, and keep the human mind in suspense with hopes, never ceasing, yet never fulfilled? Whether then we demonstrate our knowledge or our ignorance in this field, we must come once for all to a definite conclusion respecting the nature of this so-called science, which cannot possibly remain on its present footing. It seems almost ridiculous, while every other science is continually advancing, that in this, which pretends to be wisdom incarnate, for whose oracle every one inquires, we should constantly move round the same spot without gaining a single step. And so its followers, having melted away, we do not find men confident of their ability to shine in other sciences venturing their reputation here, where everybody, however ignorant in other matters, may deliver a final verdict as in this domain there is as yet no standard weight and measure to distinguish sound knowledge from shallow talk. After all, it is nothing extraordinary in the elaboration of a science, when men begin to wonder how far it has advanced, that the question should at last occur whether and how such a science is possible. Human reason so delights in constructions, that it has several times built up a tower, and then raised 
it to examine the nature of the foundation. It is never too late to become wise, but if the change comes late, there is always more difficulty in starting a reform. The question whether a science be possible presupposes a doubt as to its actuality. But such a doubt offends the men whose whole possessions consist of this supposed jewel. Hence he who raises the doubt must expect opposition from all sides. Some, in the proud consciousness of their possessions, which are ancient and therefore considered legitimate, will take their metaphysical compendia in their hands, and look down on him with contempt. Others, who never see anything except it be identical with what they have seen before, will not understand him, and everything will remain for a time, as if nothing had happened to excite the concern or the hope for an impending change. Nevertheless, I venture to predict that the independent reader of these prolegomena will not only doubt his previous science, but ultimately be fully persuaded that it cannot exist unless the demands here stated, on which its possibility depends, be satisfied, and, as this has never been done, that there is as yet no such thing as metaphysics. But as it can never cease to be in demand, since the interests of common sense are intimately interwoven with it, he must confess that a radical reform, or rather a new birth of the science, after an original plan, are unavoidable, however men may struggle against it for a while. Since the essays of Locke and Leibniz, or rather since the origin of metaphysics, so far as we know its history, nothing has ever happened which was more decisive to its fate than the attack made upon it by David Hume. He threw no light on this species of knowledge, but he certainly struck a spark from which light might have been obtained, had it caught some inflammable substance, and had its smouldering fire been carefully nursed and developed. Hume started from a single but important concept in metaphysics, viz., that of cause and effect, including its derivatives force and action, etc. He challenges reason, which pretends to have given birth to this idea from herself, to answer him by what right she thinks anything to be so constituted, that if that thing be posited, something else also must necessarily be posited, for this is the meaning of the concept of cause. He demonstrated irrefutably that it was perfectly impossible for reason to think a priori, and by means of concepts a combination involving necessity. We cannot at all see why, in consequence of the existence of one thing, another must necessarily exist, or how the concept of such a combination can arise a priori. Hence he inferred that reason was altogether deluded with reference to this concept, which she erroneously considered as one of her children, whereas in reality it was nothing but a bastard of imagination, impregnated by experience, which subsumed 
certain representations under the law of association, and mistook the subjective necessity of habit for an objective necessity arising from insight. Hence, he inferred that reason had no power to think such combinations, even generally, because her concepts would then be purely fictitious, and all her pretended a priori cognitions nothing but common experiences marked with a false stamp. In plain language, there is not, and cannot be, any such thing as metaphysics at all. However hasty and mistaken Hume's conclusion may appear, it was at least founded upon investigation, and this investigation deserved the concentrated attention of the brighter spirits of his day, as well as determined efforts on their part to discover, if possible, a happier solution of the problem, in the sense proposed by him, all of which would have speedily resulted in a complete reform of the science. But Hume suffered the usual misfortune of metaphysicians, of not being understood. It is positively painful to see how utterly his opponents, Reid, Oswald, Beatty, and lastly Priestley, missed the point of the problem. For while they were ever taking for granted that which he doubted, and demonstrating with zeal, and often with impudence, that which he never thought of doubting, they so misconstructed his valuable suggestion that everything remained in its old condition, as if nothing had happened. The question was not whether the concept of cause was right, useful, or even indispensable for our knowledge of nature, for this Hume had never doubted, but whether that concept could be thought by reason a priori, and consequently whether it possessed an inner truth, independent of all experience, implying a wider application than merely to the objects of experience. This was Hume's problem. It was a question concerning the origin, not concerning the indispensable need of the concept. Where the former decided the conditions of the use and the sphere of its valid application would have been determined as a matter of course. But to satisfy the conditions of the problem, the opponents of the great thinker should have penetrated very deeply into the nature of reason, so far as it is concerned with pure thinking, a task which did not suit them they found a more convenient method of being defiant without any insight, with the appeal to a common sense. It is indeed a great gift of God to possess right, or, as they now call it, plain common sense. But this common sense must be shown practically by well-considered and reasonable thoughts and words, not by appealing to it as an oracle when no rational justification can be advanced. To appeal to common sense, when insight and science fail, and no sooner, this is one of the subtile discoveries of modern times, by means of which the most superficial ranter can safely enter the lists with the most thorough thinker and hold his own. 
but as long as a particle of insight remains, no one would think of having recourse to this subterfuge. For what is it but an appeal to the opinion of the multitude, of whose applause the philosopher is ashamed, while the popular charlatan glories and confines in it? I should think that Hume might fairly have laid as much claim to common sense as beatty, and in addition to a critical reason, such as the latter did not possess, which keeps common sense in check and prevents it from speculating, or, if speculations are under discussion, restrains the desire to decide, because it cannot satisfy itself concerning its own arguments. By this means alone can common sense remain sound. Chisels and hammers may suffice to work a piece of wood, but for steel engraving we require an engraver's needle. Thus common sense and speculative understanding are each serviceable in their own way, the former in judgments which apply immediately to experience, the latter when we judge universally from mere concepts as in metaphysics, where sound common sense, so called in spite of the inapplicability of the word, has no right to judge at all. I openly confess the suggestion of David Hume was the very thing which many years ago first interrupted my dogmatic slumber and gave my investigations in the field of speculative philosophy quite a new direction. I was far from following him in the conclusions at which he arrived, by regarding not the whole of this problem, but a part, which by itself can give us no information. If we start from a well-founded but undeveloped thought, which another has bequeathed to us, we may well hope by continued reflection to advance farther than the acute man, to whom we owe the first spark of light. I therefore first tried whether Hume's objection could not be put into a general form, and soon found that the concept of the connection of cause and effect was by no means the only idea by which the understanding thinks the connection of things a priori, but rather that metaphysics consists altogether of such connections. I sought to ascertain their number, and when I had satisfactorily succeeded in this by starting from a single principle, I proceeded to the deduction of these concepts, which I was now certain were not deduced from experience, as Hume had apprehended, but sprung from the pure understanding. This deduction, which seemed impossible to my acute predecessor, which had never even occurred to anyone else, though no one had hesitated to use the concepts without investigating the basis of their objective validity, was the most difficult task ever undertaken in the service of metaphysics. And the worst was that metaphysics such as it then existed could not assist me in the least because this deduction alone can render metaphysics possible. But as soon as I had succeeded in solving Hume's problem, not merely in a particular case, 
but with respect to the whole faculty of pure reason, I could proceed safely, though slowly, to determine the whole sphere of pure reason completely, and from general principles, in its circumference as well as in its contents. This was required for metaphysics, in order to construct its system according to a reliable method. But I fear that the execution of Hume's problem in its widest extent, viz., my critique of the pure reason, will fare as the problem itself fared when first proposed. It will be misjudged, because it is misunderstood, and misunderstood because men choose to skim through the book and not to think through it. A disagreeable task, because the work is dry, obscure, opposed to all ordinary notions, and moreover, long-winded. I confess, however, I did not expect to hear from philosophers complaints of want of popularity, entertainment, and facility, when the existence of a highly prized and indispensable cognition is at stake, which cannot be established otherwise than by the strictest rules of methodic precision. Popularity may follow, but is inadmissible at the beginning. Yet, as regards a certain obscurity, arising partly from the diffuseness of the plan, owing to which the principal points of the investigation are easily lost sight of, the complaint is just, and I intend to remove it by the present prolegomena. The first mentioned work, which discusses the pure faculty of reason, in its whole compass and bounds, will remain the foundation to which the prolegomena as a preliminary exercise refer. For our critique must first be established as a complete and perfected science, before we can think of letting metaphysics appear on the scene, or even have the most distant hope of attaining it. We have been long accustomed to seeing antiquated knowledge produced as new by taking it out of its former context and reducing it to system in a new suit of any fancy pattern under new titles. Most readers will set out by expecting nothing else from the critique, but these prolegomena may persuade him that it is a perfectly new science, of which no one has ever even thought, the very idea of which was unknown, and for which nothing hitherto accomplished can be of the smallest use, except it be the suggestion of Hume's doubts. Yet ever he did not suspect such a formal science, but ran his ship ashore, for safety's sake, landing on skepticism, there to let it lie and rot, whereas my object is rather to give it a pilot, who, by means of safe astronomical principles, drawn from a knowledge of the globe, and provided with a complete chart and compass, may steer the ship safely whither he listeth. If in a new science, which is wholly isolated and unique in its kind, we started with the prejudice that we can judge of things by means 
of our previously acquired knowledge, which is precisely what has first to be called in question. We should only fancy we saw everywhere what we had already known, the expressions having a similar sound, only that all would appear utterly metamorphosed, senseless, and unintelligible, because we should have as a foundation our own notions, made by long habit a second nature, instead of the author's. But the long-windedness of the work, so far as it depends on the subject, and not the exposition, its consequent unavoidable dryness, and its scholastic precision, are qualities which can only benefit the science, though they may discredit the book. Few writers are gifted with the subtlety, and at the time with the grace of David Hume, or with the depth as well as the elegance of Moses Mendelssohn. Yet I flatter myself I might have made my own exposition popular, had my object been merely to sketch out a plan, and leave its completion to others. Instead of having my heart in the welfare of the science, to which I had devoted myself so long. In truth, it required no little constancy and even self-denial to postpone the sweets of an immediate success to the prospect of a slower but more lasting reputation. Making plans is often the occupation of an opulent and boastful mind, which thus obtains the reputation of a creative genius by demanding what it cannot itself supply, by censuring what it cannot improve, and by proposing what it knows not where to find. And yet something more should belong to a sound plan of a general critique of pure reason than mere conjectures. If this plan is to be other than the usual declamations of pious aspirations, but pure reason is a sphere so separate and self-contained that we cannot touch a part without affecting all the rest. We can therefore do nothing without first determining the position of each part and its relation to the rest. For, as our judgment cannot be corrected by anything without, the validity and use of every part depends upon the relation in which it stands to all the rest within the domain of reason. So in the structure of an organized body, the end of each member can only be deduced from the full conception of the whole. It may then be said of such a critique that it is never trustworthy except it be perfectly complete, down to the smallest elements of pure reason, in the sphere of this faculty, you can determine either everything or nothing. But although a mere sketch preceding the critique of pure reason would be unintelligible, unreliable, and useless, it is all the more useful as a sequel. For so we are able to grasp the whole, to examine in detail the chief points of importance in the science, and to improve in many respects our exposition, as compared with the first execution of the work. After the completion of the work I offer here, such a plan 
which is sketched out after an analytical method, while the work itself had to be executed in a synthetical style, in order that the science may present all its articulations as the structure of a peculiar cognitive faculty in their natural combination. But should any reader find this plan, which I publish as the prelogimina to any future metaphysics, still obscure, let him consider that not every one is bound to study metaphysics, that many minds will succeed very well in the exact and even in deep sciences, more closely allied to practical experience, while they cannot succeed in investigations dealing exclusively with abstract concepts. In such cases, men should apply their talents to other subjects. But he who undertakes to judge, or still more, to construct a system of metaphysics, must satisfy the demands here made, either by adopting my solution, or by thoroughly refuting it, and substituting another. To evade it is impossible. In conclusion, let it be remembered that this much-abused obscurity, frequently serving as a mere pretext under which people hide their own indolence or dullness, has its uses, since all who in other sciences observe a judicious silence speak authoritatively in metaphysics and make bold decisions, because their ignorance is not here contrasted with the knowledge of others. Yet it does contrast with sound critical principles, which we may therefore commend in the words of Virgil, Ignavum fucus pecus apraesepibus artent. Bees are defending their hives against drones, those indolent creatures. End of Introduction <laughs>